Welcome to another episode of Learn Buddhism. I'm Alan Pito. We've talked in a lot of other episodes about starting a daily practice and how to do that. And it can be overwhelming for a lot of people, especially if you're new to Buddhism or not sure how to meditate or anything like that. So I'm joined by a special guest today, Bodhipaksha. He's been teaching meditation for years, and he has a recent book that I think fits in very well with this topic today. So I'd like to welcome Bodhipaksha. Welcome. Hello. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Uh, I'd wonder if you could, for my audience, just a little bit more about yourself, uh, your teaching style. Uh, I know you have websites and books as well. So if you just talk a little more about yourself and also you know, what form of Buddhism that brought you into this religion. Okay, well, um, I'm getting old, so my biography takes longer and longer every year. <laughs> but I was uh, born in Scotland uh, in the early 60s. I got interested in Buddhism when I was at uh, high school, uh, having decided I, I was an atheist quite early on in life. But at the same time, later on, having some personal difficulties and looking for a sense of meaning in life and uh, I came across a couple of books about Buddhism. There was very little. This is we're talking about the uh, mid to late seventies at this point. There was very little uh, in print about Buddhism at that time. But what I saw intrigued me, and uh, so when I went to university in uh, Glasgow, I uh, came across a, a, a Buddhist group there. Got involved with them, and uh, well, I've been doing it ever since then. Uh, uh, you asked about my teaching. I I can't remember all the questions you asked, actually, so you might need to just jump sure, in. Sure, yeah. Yeah, like, uh, so I know you have Wild Mind is, was a, uh, you know, a teaching uh, uh, business and organization that you have. Uh, so a little bit more about, like, you know, what you do for teaching, especially meditation, and also some books that you've written. Okay, so I, uh, when I was doing a, a master's degree in uh Buddhism and business. It sounds like an odd combination to, to most people, but uh, Buddhists are familiar with the concept of right livelihood. So basically that's what I was doing in at the University of Montana, this uh, uh, joint masters. Uh, I came up with this idea for uh, a website. This was back in early 2000, I think. And I thought, you know, there's no place on the internet where you can learn meditation. That was true at that at that mm -hmm. particular time, I'd done a lot of did a lot of research, and uh, lots of Buddhist groups had links on the internet about how you could find their you know bricks and mortar operations. But I mm -hmm. thought there's nowhere on the internet that you can learn to meditate, uh, and I thought you could have uh, recordings, which would be like you know meditation tape because tapes mm -hmm. is what mm -hmm. back in those days, and you could have you know articles uh, about it and. You could have little interactive bits and everything. And I thought, yeah, that could be a really cool idea. And there was nothing like that uh, on the internet. Uh, and I got a, a, a grant through my uh, professor from the American Council of Learned Societies to set up a, a pilot program at the university uh, teaching meditation to, uh, to my students there. And uh, then, you know, I, I was able to turn that material into a website, which is you know, wildmind, wildmind.org, uh, which went live on uh, November 11th, uh, uh, 2000. So it's, yeah, the website's been out there for, for quite a long time. 
it's got quite an extensive guide to a number of meditation practices. And I have a blog with where I've written, I think, more than a thousand articles. And, and you also did, uh, you know, as uh, far as another website, did fake Buddha quotes as well. We all see those, you know, wonderful quotes out there on the internet. You're like, wow, the Buddha really said that. You're like, uh, not, not really. That's not really what he said. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that one got started because um, I was on Twitter at that particular time and there was a, a Buddhist friend of mine in England and I were marveling at some of the completely crap quotes that were floating around with, you know, dash Buddha at the end of them. And it seemed like you could take anything and put the Buddha at the end of it and people would believe it. Mm-hmm. And we even kind of like jokingly made up a, a couple of things and, and and did that. I'm ashamed to say that now. I actually invented a couple of fake Buddha quotes. I don't think they actually really got into circulation, but a couple of people passed them around. And uh, one one person who was corresponding me with about a, a corresponding with me about this oh actually there was a missing step i i think i i had a personal blog at that time and i documented a few of those fake buddha quotes there because you know in your blog you just write mm-hmm. about what's going on in your life and that's what i was doing and someone said to me uh oh no you should start a dedicated website about that and i thought that's a really good idea so yeah i bought fakebuddhaquotes.com and uh now i there's hundreds of of these fake quotes been uh been documented yeah, and I think that's really helpful, especially for those who are new to Buddhism. And you're going to see these quotes. And you're like, you know, maybe some are kind of close, and here's maybe the scriptural uh, textual reference, but some are just way off base and just made oh. up, right? Well, is you say you know beginners to Buddhism, but even uh, relatively experienced practitioners mm-hmm. uh, tend to oh, get true. get taken in by these quotes. You'll find them in books mm-hmm. uh, by Buddhist authors, and. Uh, uh, Tricycle Magazine had a little bit of an awakening when they did this article about uh, an illustrated book that had been published with, with Buddha quotes in mm. it. And uh, I think they they showed something like six or seven illustrations from the book, including the quotes. And I think maybe all but one of them, or maybe all of them were actually fake quotes. Wow. And they were they were a little bit embarrassed by the degree to which they'd been taken in by 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 those quotes. And yeah, you know, a lot of us have. Yeah, and uh, you know that I remember one of the books I bought from you also was uh, regarding fake, but of course it made its way into a book which I thought was very well done. Um, but you know you have uh, several books under your, under your name as well. Uh, one recent one is basically a whole year of like meditation mantras recitations and i I thought that was a really good tie-in with this episode Uh, because you know you'll have people who well i'm just not exactly sure you know how to start practicing or maybe they really haven't decided 100 on all of buddhism for example or particular tradition so kind of like for people who are in that little niche right there right I, i think this might be a good topic for us because you know there's many different traditions of buddhism out there Everyone practices a different ways. Now, like, well, there's just like one form of Buddhism and you're all practicing the same way. There's many different ways. So this might be a good segue, you know, to for people to start practicing. So yeah. it, in in your opinion, what are some simple and practical ways one can be t- begin a meditation practice or any uh, techniques that you recommend? Because you've, you know, like you mentioned, you've been teaching meditation for a long time, you know, as, as simple as it could be, like what might be some nice ways somebody could start doing that? Okay, well, before I get to that question, I would just like mm-hmm. to say, I'm not sure that the book is necessarily uh, most useful to people that are complete beginners to meditation. Mm-hmm. I don't think, 
learning meditation from a bunch of written instructions in, in a book is the best way to learn it because you can't memorize them all. Right. And uh, you can't keep opening your eyes and peeking at, at the book again. Uh, it's probably uh, most useful for, for people that have a bit of an established meditation practice and they're looking for a bit of nourishment and mm. a bit of variety. They maybe you get a little bit stuck in a practice and it's getting a bit boring and a bit a bit dull. So I think it's probably a bit better uh, for those kind of people. I, but, I think that's a, to cut you out, I think that's a, a good point because you do mention a couple of different techniques or different ways. So if you want to, re, like you say, refresh uh, or your your practice, you know, for meditation, you can see some different ways inside here. Yeah, well, yeah. as you said, the, the book is a is a, like a reading a day and every mm -hmm. second page is a meditation. So there's over 180 suggestions for meditation uh, in there, all of them different from, from each other. Uh, I was actually, it was an interesting book to write. I, I didn't have the idea for this book. The publisher uh, approached mm. me. They already had the idea for the book and they approached me about it and said, could you write this book in the six weeks? Mm. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I could put everything else aside and how I got it. So I did. And I really had to, you know, dig quite deep, you know, look at all of the things that I have said about meditation over mm -hmm. the last uh you know 30 odd years that I've been teaching and just uh try and you know get that down on, on, on paper. So it was a it was a fun exercise. Uh I, I enjoyed it. It's it's quite nice to be writing something that's lots of little bits mm -hmm. rather than big long chapters where everything has to hang together. Right. Anyway, uh, you you asked about you know what's the best way to get started on meditation mm. if you haven't uh, already got a practice, and I would say listen to guided meditations. If you can't go to uh, a face to face class, and one of the reasons I started my website was because lots of people, particularly in the United States, live hundreds of miles mm -hmm. away from the nearest center and so it's difficult to get to a face-to-face -face class plus there's also you know, the whole covid thing it hasn't mm -hmm. gone away uh, if you can't get to a face-to-face -face class then there's lots of places online where you can get access to guided meditations finding the quality ones is maybe a little bit more difficult mm -hmm. there's apps like uh insight timer mm -hmm. uh, where i have quite a few meditations uh recorded and uh, there's a lot of good stuff on there. Like, again, a lot of that stuff in there probably isn't that great and maybe not not the best, but uh, there's certainly lots of fantastic material and it doesn't cost anything. You can just go on there and try things. If you like them, you like them. If you don't like them, you don't. Right. I think that's a, a good point too. Like Inside Timer is a great one. Like you mentioned, you're on there. It has uh, several guided meditations and that'd be a, a good way for people to start, especially to have a uh, one-on-one. And like you mentioned, you know, in one part, you know, we're getting a lot of stuff through the internet. And when you start a wild mind, there wasn't really a lot of stuff like that. We're seeing more and more people interested in Buddhism, meditation, and, and every other things, and supported in ways through the internet, which we didn't have in the past. But we're also still very spread out, you know, so we don't always have, you know, temples or groups or, or something inside our, our city, our town, or something like that. So this is really kind of bridging that gap. And Thankfully, it's getting a little bit easier. So you're right. There's also sometimes, you know, temples and groups may have a Zoom session or something as well. So there's ways to kind of kind of mitigate yeah. that. So when it comes to, you also have like mantras and recitations inside there. So mantras, what, can you explain a little bit more about mantras and how you think people can incorporate that inside their, their practice or their day? Okay. I don't tend to do a lot of mantra practice myself. Mm -hmm. I did uh, years ago. 
but what mantras are essentially is a form of uh, it was meditation based on sound. So you are uh, chanting particular sounds out loud, or you can have them as a an internal sound in your mind and that becomes the focus of your practice and if you're actually chanting them then it's not just the the sound but the uh the whole mechanism of producing the sound so you can you're aware of your breathing as you're chanting you're aware of what your mm -hmm. lips and your tongue is doing so it is quite a physical kind of experience it's not just a, a sort of heady thing where you know i'm listening to a sound uh, but right. you're actually aware of your body it's a body awareness practice as well so there's lots of these different uh uh, mantras and things that aren't quite mantras, but they work in exactly the same way because there's there's chants. And uh, the most famous one, probably from Buddhism, is uh, Om Mani Padme Hung, which is the mantra of a, a, a mythical figure called uh, Avalokiteshvara. And a lot of these mantras are connected with particular figures, and they were a, a devotional uh, practice. Uh, and you don't have to like believe that Avalokiteshvara is real. You just have to have a sense of what Avalokiteshvara is meant uh, to be like. Uh, so Avalokiteshvara is this embodiment of uh, compassion. And uh, there's both male forms and female forms. Mm -hmm. uh, originally, he was uh, a male mm -hmm. figure. And... Uh, yeah, so you know, you you can connect with the the iconography and the objects that the the figure is holding and stories about them and all that kind of thing. But uh, basically, it comes down to you're you're chanting a sound, uh, and it has it has some meaning. There's some elements which have a literal meaning, and there's some that don't. Uh, the the mantra Om Mani Padme Hung. A lot of them start with Om at the beginning, and a lot of them end with Hung. At the end, and neither of those has uh, a literal meaning. So, Om is said to be, and this is going back, you know, before the the Buddhist uh, tradition. Om is said to be a kind of a, a universal sound. It's like the sound of reality. Mm. Uh, the Hung at the end. I have a theory. I, I I don't know if this is actually correct or not, but it, in some Indian dialects, uh, Hung is the first person singular. And mm. Pali, for example, uh, the first person singular is Ahung. Uh, and I, I think that what's happening in the practice is you're going from the universal to the embodied, to the personal, to me right mm. here. And in between the Om and the Hung is usually the name of a particular figure or some qualities associated with that figure. So I, the way I see a mantra is you're, you're evoking uh, the, like the nature of reality through mm -hmm. chanting Om, and then you're evoking a pathway to realizing the nature of reality, uh, you know, wisdom or compassion or something like that, which is the name or qualities of a particular figure. And then you got the Hung at the end, which is like the, you know, the embodied uh, qualities within yourself. So you're connecting these two. Uh, so the the Mani Padme at the middle, uh, a lot of people say that means the jewel in the lotus, mm. but actually it doesn't. Uh, it grammatically uh, can't mean that. And it probably uh, Mani Padma was the name, an, an alternative name for Avalokiteshvara. Mm. And uh, the 
the reason it changes to an E at the end rather than an, an A is that in the vocative case in uh, Sanskrit, uh, you change the, the, well, you can, depending on the word, you change the last letter to an E. The vocative case is when you're calling upon someone or, or addressing uh, someone. So basically, I think you're just addressing uh, Mani Padma, which means the, the jewel lotus one. So it's Om, O jewel lotus one, Hong, you know, bringing us from the, mm -hmm. uh, the universal through this, uh, this mythical symbolic figure into our present moment lives. That's what wow. I think it's about. Yeah, that, that was really interesting. I think you also probably have another blog or website to build now regarding other meanings for these mantras. Uh, on, I'm just on, joking with you. <laughs> on, uh, on Wild Mind, I have a section on mantras. And interestingly, although it's not a form of meditation practice, I, I do a lot these days. It's the, by far the most popular part of the, the website. Yeah. And so, you know, we all, we see throughout Buddhism that, you know, recitation, also like you're, you're mentioning right here, of whether it's, you know, chanting sutras or maybe recitation of a Buddha or Bodhisattva, like you just mentioned, it's very popular, you know, and it's, you know, in my eyes as well, it's, it's a form of meditate, meditative practice as well. It, it very, very well could be. So yeah. we, we also have in, you know, Buddhism, you know, what you have in your book as well too, but reflections, you know, maybe more so I would say maybe in the Mahayana side and maybe some traditions, but maybe reflecting on um, maybe Amatama Buddha's pure land or something like that. But can you tell me a little more about reflections, maybe uh, just in your personal opinion, uh, what it means to you and maybe how that could be part of a, a daily practice? Yeah. So, you know, occasionally you'll come across something that, it just changes your perspective. It's, mm. It comes from somebody else's experience and their experience is quite different from yours. And their experience is possibly much more helpful. Their perspective is much more helpful than the one that you normally carry around. And so in a way you like borrow somebody else's way of thinking by uh, tapping into something that, that they have said. Mm. Uh, and I'm not talking here necessarily about uh, you know Buddhist figures. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorites, for example, that I came across in a New York Times article was from a, a, a woman entrepreneur uh, called, I think, uh, Lynn uh, Jurich. And she said in this article, uh, all people in all circumstances are my allies. Mm. And isn't that fantastic? You know, yeah. it resonates with so many Buddhist teachings where you regard your enemy as being your teacher, uh, your enemy right. is indispensable for you for you uh, because you have all of these mental toxic habits inside of you, like being judgy and mm -hmm. hating and all that kind of stuff. And okay, you could stay away from people that annoy you and that'll all quiet down inside you and you won't realize that it's there, mm -hmm. but it's still there. So the next time you come across some annoying a-hole, uh, all of the the you know the anger and the judgment is going to come up again. How are you going to transform that unless you've got somebody that irritates you? So it's actually really useful to be challenged. Uh, so that that saying of of Lynn uh, Durich's it's uh, it's very simple. It's very straightforward. You can keep it in your mind, and maybe for during the course of a day or many days, over and over again, you can just bring this up. And uh, you'll probably forget about it a lot of the time, but then you'll see some 
difficulty arising, you're stuck in a traffic jam or you're having a conversation with some really negative person and you'll just remember, hmm, all people in all circumstances are my allies. And you think, yeah, right. I have an opportunity to practice here. So that's kind of the way I see uh, these reflections working. It's just a, a way of opening yourself up to a different perspective, one that helps you to transcend your ordinary habits, which you know, very often the, the habits that we carry around with us are causing us suffering, which of course we blame the world for. It's this a-hole that is making me, me suffer, but it's not, it's you, it's your reactions. So right. we need to become aware of that. I, I love that. And I love that, that, um, that uh, quote that you, you brought up as well too. I mean, you have, you know, Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, he, the book has the same title, No Mud, No Lotus, right? So like we have to, you know, it's all this, you know, yeah. Uh, I don't say suffering, but like all these different things that are annoying us and everything. These are teaching elements. These are these are things that help us grow, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You just need to remind yourself of it, which is where these uh, reflections yeah. come. Yeah, don't go down a rabbit hole, right? Mm. So, for somebody you know starting off a practice, whether that's you know a purely Buddhist one or maybe one where it's going to be a little bit more just. I would say more on the generic side, you know, maybe I'm just going to just focus on meditation or something like that. You kind of brought up uh, a few examples, you know, throughout this, this episode, but what would be your top recommendation or advice for somebody who just wants to start practicing it and whatever that means. And whether that's more on the religious side or more, you know, just kind of like, Hey, I just want to, you know, focus more on meditation. Like what would be your general recommendation? I would suggest uh, don't try to go purely alone. I mean, you're, I suggested, for example, that you listen to a guided meditation and that is not entirely going out alone because you're relying on somebody else's uh, expertise and what they've learned from their practice in, in order to learn something yourself. But it's very limited because you can't have a communication with them mm -hmm. on site timer, uh, for example. So if you get the opportunity to like, you know, take an online course or take a, a Zoom course or something where you can ask questions and where you can share what's going on with you and get somebody else's perspectives, that is really uh, very useful. If you can be part of a practice community, mm -hmm. and there's uh, some of those online as well, where you're not just sharing something with, uh, with a teacher and getting some feedback from them, but you're sharing uh, what's going on with with other people, uh, you know, peers, uh, you know, at, at your own level, uh, mm -hmm. so to speak, then that's also incredibly useful. Because as you will know, you know, the Buddha said, uh, spiritual friendship is the the whole of the spiritual life. Mm -hmm. uh, we we need other people because uh, we are trapped by our own limitations, our our own habits, our, our own uh, shortcomings. It's very difficult to see beyond them, uh, and having other people who can point things out to you. And that's not necessarily nasty. It's not necessarily that they're, that they're pointing out, oh, you, you're behaving in a horrible way. Uh, you're a terrible person. Uh, that wouldn't be very helpful at all. They right. might be doing quite the opposite. You know, you might be saying, oh, I'm such a terrible person. I'm so hopeless at this. And other people are saying, oh, look, that's just not helpful. You know, you're putting yourself down. You're amazing. We love you. You know, it, it can actually be a very, very positive experience to have other people around you who are uh, supporting you and giving you encouragement. So that, that would be my main advice. Don't do it alone. Try and find what in Buddhism we call we call a Sangha, uh, mm -hmm. a spiritual community. I, I agree with that. I, I love that explanation. I've always recommended people, especially if you don't have 
a you know a temple or a group nearby you know like you mentioned there might be ways online to do that where you can have that interaction you don't want to kind of just be book smart you want to kind of you want to get that interaction and if you can during a vacation or something maybe that's a time to go to a temple or a group and to their class you want to kind of get that in-person instruction that that communication going as i think you mentioned in the very beginning you can't really get everything from a book. You know, it can help you a little bit, but if you can get that that one-on-one and continue no, it. Yeah. Meditation's yeah. practical. I don't, there's a, an old joke about someone who wanted to learn to swim. So, you know, he read every book you possibly could on on swimming and you know, then jumped to the swimming pool. And the first thing he did was drown. <laughs> and uh, because it's a skill, it's a practical yeah. skill. It's something that involves your body and your coordination and, and your mind and your breathing and everything working together. And meditation practice is, is like that as well. And it's not just meditation, it's the, the whole of your life. How are you mm-hmm. living how are you living your life? It's a, a big topic. You need you need other people. Yep, we're all in that car going down there together. So you have those friends uh, along with you. It definitely helps out. Even though we don't like what's being said, it's there to help us. Yeah. So yeah. So uh Bodhipaksha, thank you so much for coming on this episode. You know, as we close out, I'm gonna put inside the description of the podcast, you know, links to your website and to your to your book that we're talking about as well. But I thought it'd be kind of fun, you know, if you have a a fake Buddha quilt that you've, you know, that sticks out of your mind or like a quilt of the Buddha or something that you think is you know, a real one that you think is great. You know, if you have one and you'd like to share, I think that'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the fake quote that comes to mind at the moment is one that I like because I think it's just a really beautiful quote. Uh, the quote is, is along the lines of, uh, uh, I'm not quoting exactly here, but if you consider speaking, uh, well, so maybe you can edit this. But <laughs> it's something like, if you intend to to speak, consider: is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Mm, yes, it has really strong resonances with the Buddhist uh, tradition and with the way that the the Buddha talked about. Uh, about speech and the the speech precepts that, that he outlined, the ethical precepts, uh, the ethical guidelines for for speaking, and yet it's got nothing to do with Buddhism whatsoever. It was written by a Victorian woman, I think, called Mary Ann Pitzker, and she, that was the title of a poem that she wrote. So uh, that one I love because it's just it's so close, so close. Mm-hmm that you would think it is and, and we can use it it's another one of these reflections that you can bring into your life i think that's why she she wrote that particular poem um and i think one for a real buddha quote uh there was one time that the buddha was talking to two people who happened to be acrobats and the the buddha made a, a reference to how the two of them uh worked with each other because you know acrobats are doing very dangerous things right and uh the Buddha said to them, you know, taking care of myself, I take care of others. And taking care of others, I take care of myself. Mm. I think that's just a really valuable reminder about practice. That, uh, well, first of all, if you're taking care of yourself by being mindful, by being aware of what your mind does and not being so reactive, not being so angry, uh, then that's going to help everybody who is around you. But also... It's really important that second part, taking care of others. I take mm-hmm. care of myself. Uh, developing 
uh, more kindness, developing more compassion, taking more interest in other people. It takes the focus off of ourselves. And the more we focus on ourselves, ironically, the more uh, unhappy we, we mm. tend to be. So uh, focusing on others, not only does it take our attention away from ourselves and make us less selfish, but we have this deep need, it seems, to connect in a, a kind and empathetic way with others. It gives us a, a sense of happiness. It gives us a sense of meaning in life. So ironically, paying more attention to others and how they are doing and caring about them actually makes us happy. So it's beautiful. All of that in just uh, just a few words. Yeah, I agree with you. That's absolutely beautiful. I love that. It's And it's something that in our minds we think is probably contrary. We're like, well, I need to yeah. focus on myself, but that's actually yeah. not the case. Yeah. Do, do know, we have time for a very quick anecdote? Sure, yeah. yeah. Okay, so one of my uh, favorite Scientific studies that was done. Well, it's not exactly. I suppose it's a scientific study. It was a, a literary study that was done. Uh, there were some uh, psychologists who looked at uh, poetry and the language that was used in poetry, and they matched up uh, poets uh, from who were the same gender, lived at the same time, lived in the same country, uh, and in each pair, one of the poets had committed suicide, and the other hadn't. And they found that the language that the suicidal poets used was very different from the language that the non-suicidal poets had used. So poets who committed suicide use first person all the time. They kept referring to I, me, mine. And uh, they use that language more and more and more until they got to the point where they killed themselves. The poets who did not kill themselves but lived long hopefully happy lines. I don't, I don't really know. They tended to use uh, we, us, ours much more. And they use those words more and more and more until the, you know, hopefully happy end of their lives. And it's just, again, it just brings us back to this point that it's uh, counterintuitive perhaps, but the more we say, oh, my own well-being, my own happiness, that's the number one thing taking care of number one, that's number one on my, my list. Uh, you know, we do have to look after ourselves, but if we don't extend our sphere of concern out toward other people, then we tend to just stew. I mean, we get unhappy and it can have bad consequences. No, I, I like, that was very interesting. It's, it's amazing that 2,600 years ago, the Buddha had this kind of figured out. You know, yeah. and we're still we're still finding the real world practical applications of it today. Yeah, it's uh, just observation. I think you just observed yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Buddy Paksha, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Uh, as I mentioned, yeah. I will have uh, in the description uh, more links uh, to your website and books and, and such like that. But thank you very much. And I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Alan.